Welcome to Surviving Society Presents The Global Power of the British Monarchy. In these episodes, we'll be looking to challenge existing conversations about the British monarchy. Often in popular discourse, the monarchy is taken for granted as part of British culture. With expert guests, the podcast tells a story of the other side of monarchy, from its links to empire and colonialism, to issues of wealth accumulation and nationalism. The series sets out to disrupt common sense understandings and undertake a critical analysis of the firm and its various intersections with inequality. This series has been executively produced by Laura Clancy. In this episode, we'll be considering monarchy's global role. There are 14 other Commonwealth realms in addition to the UK, with the British sovereign as their monarch. And in 2021, Barbados became the world's newest republic after abolishing the British monarchy. To discuss this, I'm joined for this episode by Dr Alison Ramsey and Dr Holly Randall-Moon. Alison, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Alison Ramsey. I am a lecturer in the history department and I specialize in cultural and heritage studies at University of the West Indies St. Augustine campus. And my research interests are linked to areas of cultural history and heritage. And I am a Barbadian. Hello, I'm Holly Randall Moon. I'm a non-Indigenous lecturer in the School of Indigenous Australian Studies at the Charles Sturt University um, Dubbo campus in Australia. And my research looks at the social and cultural values that are associated with the British monarchy, in particular, looking at uh, whiteness and uh, critical race theory. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you both here. I think we should start off by maybe just outlining, I mean, we're talking from very different contexts, right, in terms of the monarchy's place in our, in our different regions. So we can maybe start off from maybe outlining the roles or the legacies of the British monarchy in our, in our different contexts. Okay. Well, politically, up to 2021, Barbados would have shared the sovereign with other Commonwealth nations, and the monarch's operational and ceremonial duties were mostly delegated to her representative, meaning the Governor General of Barbados. And this would have come about um, after the Independence Act of 1966 that granted Barbados' independence from November 30th of that year. So basically, with the monarchy in place, the crown primarily functioned as a guarantor of the governance and being a safeguard against the abuse of power. Now, evidently in Barbados, from our political system, we have a pattern after the British Parliament and the Westminster system, and we have a parliament with two houses, the lower house, the House of Assembly, and the upper house called the Senate. Now, prior to the Constitution Amendment Bill in 2021, there were references in the laws of Barbados to Her Majesty the Queen, the Crown, the Governor General, and Official oaths of Barbados included the Queen. And of course, we had titles such as royal included in some institutions, for example, the Royal Barbados Police Force. Now we have those changes with the Constitution Amendment Bill, but we still have some remnants of our legacies of royalty in Barbados through, for example, place names. And these include the state hospital, um, our parks, educational institutions, and communities. So that colonial legacy remains. So we have in Barbados, for example, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and Queen's Park, both located in Bridgetown, which is our city. And Queen's College was also named after the Queen and it was in Bridgetown, but then relocated to St. James. We have Jubilee Gardens that is in Bridgetown and that was created in 1888 to commemorate the Golden Jubilee of Queen Victoria. And we have some street names that honor different royal members, such as Princess Alice Highway to honor Princess Alice. 
some of our schools, for example, Princess Margaret Secondary School in St. Philip is named after her as well. We have another park named after King George called King George V Memorial Park. We also have other roads with royal names such as Buckingham Road and Queen Mary Road and Queen Victoria Road. Now, over time as well, we've had several royal visitors visits to the island, including visits by Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip. And on one of her visits in 1975, she would have knighted a renowned Barbadian cricketer, Sir Garfield Sobers. He also had Prince Harry coming to Barbados, and one of the times he came was in 2016 on behalf of the island's 50th independence. And then we had recently in 2021, Prince Charles attended the Republic Day events and celebrations in Bridgetown. And on that occasion, he was awarded the Order of Freedom of Barbados. So we do have colonial legacies in the island in several ways in our institutions and across our communities still in Barbados. What's the discussion like around some of those names? Is there talk to get rid of them or is it just that that's kind of accepted? Uh, no, there was some discussion about renaming Queen's Park recently and um, one or two other locations, but public didn't seem to be too interested in renaming Queen's Park. But we had recently a renaming of one of our bus terminals. Um, it was called Fairchild Street Bus Terminal, um, based on the location. And now it is in honor of a spiritual Baptist leader, Granville, um, who would have died and his contributions to religion in Barbados. There's some concerns or some debates as to whether or not you need to replace everything now you're a republic or, you know, you still have that part of your heritage, which obviously comes from a contested past, but do you erase everything because it's a contested past? So you would have different perspectives on the relevance of these particular areas. Should we go to Holly? Yeah, it sounds like it's very similar, actually, in Australia. We're a, a constitutional monarchy um, and our parliamentary system is, is set up to very similarly to the way that Alison described. And we have a Governor-General who is the, the Crown's representative at both a state and a federal level. And it's not necessarily just a symbolic role. Infamously, in the 1970s, the Governor-General did sack the Australian Prime Minister off Whitlam. So they do exercise some prerogative powers. And there are also parks, hospitals, and street names that are named after uh, after members of the British monarchy. Uh, we have the state of Victoria. There's the Queen Victoria building in Sydney. And just recently, there was a, a hospital um, in Victoria, Maroondah Hospital, which is named after an Indigenous name, and that's being renamed after uh, Queen Elizabeth the second, which has caused some controversy, the Crown's role in Australia um, connects the Crown, uh, connects Australia culturally and symbolically to, to Britain, to the United Kingdom and, and locates Australia as part of that, that Commonwealth. And some of the work that I do, I look at the way in which the British monarchy embodies Anglo-Celtic and Anglican Christian values and and how that reinforces those values as also being dominant in an Australian uh, context and the crown is also the embodiment of crown dispossession in Australia as well crown uh, the legality of crown possession of indigenous land in Australia is still the controlling legal precedent in Australia and the crown historically as well as uh, contemporaneously has also been the key interlocutor for First Nations in terms of 
campaigns for the return of ancestral remains, um, treaties and petitions regarding the treatment of First Nations by colonial and later government authorities. So what does that mean in practice? Crown possession. That means that unless First Nations can prove continuous possession of land for native title, they are essentially trespasses on mm-hmm. Australia. So it's at, it's it's the crown that land is the prerogative of the the state and federal governments unless that land is given to First Nations through native title. What's really interesting, I guess, in both of these contexts is you know there's been a referendum in Australia. It was in 1996, pretty close. It was about uh, 45 to 55. That, I mean, that's interesting context, isn't it, 96? Because it's kind of before, <laughs> before Diana, before all kind of, especially in recent years, I'm thinking like Prince Andrew and Harry and Meghan and all of these kind of moments of, I'm looking for the right word, drama, I suppose, in a way that has kind of created this attention on the monarchy in a very particular way. I mean, if there was a referendum tomorrow, do you think it would go a different way? In Australia? A lot of commentators think that the referendum outcome might be different after King Charles and certainly there's been speculation that the Labor government and Labor prime ministers and some uh, some Liberal prime ministers wanted to wait until after uh, Queen Elizabeth had passed in order to put that referendum to people. Um, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say um, that that 1996 referendum was... It, 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 it was close, so it's hard to mm. say what would happen um, if a referendum was run today. I, I know you said that that was 1996 was uh, pre-Diana. Kate and William are also very popular, um, particularly yeah. with young people, so that, that might play a factor as well. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, I found, I found, so I came to Australia a few years ago and did some like um, academic seminars. And when I was kind of doing my bit about the monarchy and inequality and I was presenting to kind of all the Australian academics and they were like, well, yeah, like, <laughs> like it was really obvious what I was saying. Whereas when I present that in the UK, I'm not saying I get pushed back, but there's a, there's a lot kind of, it was a lot less agreeable. <laughs> and it really took me aback, like how I'm not, obviously I'm not, you know, suggesting everyone's a Republican, but, but the ways in which those kind of discourses are more common sense I suppose and are kind of more embedded in the public discourse I think in a way that, that just it doesn't exist in the UK. It's possible that maybe because Australia is sort of geographically removed from the United Kingdom although there's a lot of cultural religious and social connections between the British monarchy and how it's located in Australia and how that in turn locates Australia in relation to the United Kingdom, I wonder if that geographical distance might p- play a part there. And then also we, we do have that history of the Governor-General sacking mm. uh, Prime Minister. And at the moment, actually, there's a little bit of controversy around the current Governor-General because the former Prime Minister secretly swore himself into a number of Cabinet positions which the Governor-General signed off on and and so there are commentators and people asking why didn't the Governor-General sort of raise this as an issue you've got the Prime Minister secretly swearing themselves into multiple um, cabinet positions so perhaps that has something to do with that as well. And I think you're right that that geographical distance and alienation from kind of this the bubble <laughs> that people in the UK seem to live in around the monarchy. I mean Alison I know it's slightly different because you've you know, in Barbados, they've, they've got rid of it, so they've kind of said their piece. But, I mean, is there that same kind of feeling that Holly's been describing? Well, in Barbados, I think that in the modern day, the people were interested in going towards a republic. That was a, an issue. Um, but, you know, there were polls that 
basically said, you know, one third was in favor and um, some were not. And then some were just indifferent um, to it um, in the past. But when the whole idea came up again about becoming a republic under the Prime Minister, Mayor Motley, um, it didn't seem as though the public had a problem with going towards a republic. I think some persons were a bit concerned about not having a referendum on the, on the issue. Um, legally, a referendum is not required once the, there's a, a, a majority in parliament, which the um, Mayor Motley administration had. So, but persons would have felt that they wanted to be a bit more involved in the process, but it didn't seem as though they were, you know, blatantly opposed to moving towards that direction. I mean, it was fascinating to watch <laughs> that moment of the referendum and kind of, and, and the discourses and particularly that, you know, that night when it all happened. I mean, what was, what was it like, I guess is the question. What was it like? Yes. Um, unfortunately, you know, because we were are still in the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we have the, the protocols in place to reduce the number of persons gathering. So it was not like it was in 1966 where there were thousands of people at the garrison Savannah to witness the Lauren of the Union Jack for Independence. So the crowd was smaller. It was a more contained event, but it was broadcast, you know, on television and on the internet for persons who couldn't physically be there and persons in diaspora to see. And we also had a good deal of media coverage, which also, you know, um, showed the world what was happening. And I thought that the program that they did was a good program in terms of showing the culture of Barbados to the world, showing the um, the arts, the youth and development and involving them in the proceedings as well as, as having the um, traditional parade units um, um, on parade as well. At the end of the day, Barbadians um, had something to celebrate during a difficult time in our history in terms of economic hardship, a period where persons were isolated from each other, a period where people were dying and sick. And perhaps that mobilization of this idea of becoming a republic for some people, especially those in diaspora, was something for them to hold on to. And um, at the end of the day, you know, we also had um, Robin Rihanna Fenty becoming a national hero. And um, that in itself was a feat because um, she's the second female to join that um, list of national heroes in Barbados and the second one to be actually alive in addition to Sir Garfield Sobers. So it was, a, it was a good moment to be able to witness it. And I'm sure that many persons would have wished to have witnessed it in person um, as they did you know, many years ago, 55 years ago um, on Independence Day. And I mean, it was still like so spectacular. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, so it was, it was, you know, the organization and there, there was an entire program. And then, of course, we had the speeches and we had the governor general becoming the president, taking that oath. And it was a lot of pop and pageantry, as much as you could have within that particular context of having a pandemic and having to have control over numbers of people and movement and so forth. So I think within that difficult time, they would have done a quite, a, quite a good job in terms of showing Barbados and what Barbados is about and how Barbados is making that symbolic transition for itself to decide, well, we want to go in this direction and we are taking a step in a pandemic in economic hardship. Some people may think, oh my goodness, the timing was crazy. But, you know, nonetheless, the prime minister decided that she's moving forward 
and that's what happened. But you've got to seize the moment, I guess. Like if it's gone through the referendum and it's happening, you've got to go for it. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. So she she didn't need a she didn't need a referendum. She had the majority in Parliament. So she said she was going to bring the country to a republic, and so said, so done. Well, so I think what's really interesting to me, and obviously I'm speaking from a UK context for both of you, I guess, is that you know the monarchy relies so much on symbols. And you kind of said they're like pomp and punditry and, and the kind of a spectacular. That's what they that's what they do, right? And that's kind of a way of mediating the monarchy to the, the UK, but also to the world, and a way of suggesting its importance and suggesting its kind of place within politics and in power and all of those things. I mean, I wonder, and I'm thinking here, Holly, of, of your work about royal visits and kind of the the stories that goes alongside that and how you know, and how that is narrated in particular ways. So that kind of spectacular thing of them, you know, doing all these meet and greets or having these different ceremonies and and the, and the power of, of symbol and, and of spectacle and how that then might play out in a, in a global context, I guess. Absolutely. In, um, in an Australian context, the, the monarchy is framed as, as having a, an important symbolic role and some academic scholarship also reinforces this view that the the value of the monarchy or the sustainability of the monarchy lies within the capacity of the monarchy to have or embody symbolic values. Uh, and I guess what I do in my work is to sort of critique that idea that if the monarchy is represented as symbolic, does that disarticulate or obscure some of the structures and systems which actually work to implant the British monarchy into uh, an, an, an Australian context so for instance I mentioned before crown possession that that's not simply for First Nations that's not simply symbolic um, and I mentioned that the Governor-General uh, the, the Governor-General doesn't simply play uh, a symbolic role and in some of the work that I've looked at in terms of royal visits to Australia what I do is set that representation of the British monarchy as symbolic against representations of First Nations sovereignty. And what I found in some of the news reporting, there was this narrative of uh, Prince William visiting Australia and visiting Redfern, uh, an Indigenous suburb in Sydney, visiting Redfern. And there was this kind of fairy tale narrative that was being attached to it, like the prince is visiting so-called gritty Redfern. And what that did was it completely obscured in the news reporting that, that Prince William was actually invited to Redfern by elders. There was a sovereign welcome from elders, Indigenous elders, to invite William to Redfern to discuss a whole range of sovereign issues. But the sovereign status of First Nations gets erased, whereas the sovereign status of, of Prince William is what's um, promoted in that in that news media and that and the the local news media reporting was actually very similar to international news reporting and that they both sort of framed this as kind of this fairy tale moment of like a, a future king visiting this place rather than viewing it from a, a first nations perspective which would be uh there was a, a a sovereign invitation from elders and first nations to another sovereign to um to discuss sovereign matters and i really like the way you phrase it I kind of quoted you in, in the questions I sent you because <laughs> I think I think you phrased it really nicely as in how that kind of you say it reinforces the centrality of white bodies to sovereign forms of power and I think that particularly like you say in that I, and, and the, the kind of the ceremonies so they kind of join in you know different ceremonies when they go and how 
there was those which I can't remember where they were in the world, but it was William and Kate and they were kind of being held up on on thrones and being thrown through a crowd and that's kind of often used as, as this image, right, of that kind of, that, that, that centrality of power. Um, and I think, I think that role of spectacle is really important in that, um, in kind of how that is represented and communicated and reinforced and all of those things. Absolutely, and, and in particular in relation to First Nations, you can see that in the history of the royal visits in Australia and some of the early royal visits from uh, Queen Elizabeth First Nations were sort of kept at a distance from from meeting the monarch and infamously in the in the 1950s there was the queen watched a performance of corroboree but it was performed by a non-indigenous person this non-indigenous performer went to speak to first nations communities to get all this information about what a corroboree looks like uh, and then performed um the cor- corroboree because it wasn't considered culturally acceptable for first nations to perform their own culture and that that has kind of shifted over the years as First Nations have become more involved in royal visits and in some of the work that I talked about with Prince Prince William visiting Redfern that that visit was opened with a, a smoking ceremony and there was direct engagement between Prince William and First Nations elders which was completely different to some of the early visits with 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 Queen Elizabeth so there are there are changes in the way in which certainly First Nations engage with the British monarchy and royal visits, but like I said, there's there's still that narrative of reproducing and reinforcing the sovereign status of the British monarchy, but not the sovereign status of First Nations. And I do wonder what kind of work that does in terms of reproducing the British monarchy and the crown as this durable symbol rather than looking at, like I said, what are those structures and systems which actually implant and embed the monarchy into political, social and cultural institutions in Australia? One thing I'm really interested in is how, again, in the UK context, that those media representations are like the front stage, but then you have all of this stuff going on in the backstage, right? But without that front stage, the backstage couldn't exist because they need that kind of, they need that spectacle, they need that, that kind of constant, I'm going to say reinforcement again, <laughs> to use the boring word, but that constant reinforcement in order to kind of mean that those things manage to happen without people noticing and without people asking too many questions. Yeah, and I think hence the kind of newsworthiness of protests. When when protests do occur, mm. it, it, it starts to reveal some of that backstage work that, that as you say is really obscured in the spectacle of those visits and um and I, I remember seeing a video on i can't remember which news channel it was but i think king charles was shaking hands with with people and a woman leaned over and said you know we're all paying for this and and his mind has sort of quickly sort of whisked her away but yeah you don't you don't get a sense of those kinds of protests or or, or backstage moments which would which would again reveal that it, this isn't symbolic this is, you know, heavily constructed and, and manufactured. I mean, when William and Kate went to Jamaica, just like a PR disaster. They've been doing those visits, right, for so many years. But then all of a sudden at this moment of Barbados and those questions and all that, kind of the, you know, the political discourse and everything, all of a sudden it was almost like people were, people were like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's really problematic. And the whole world kind of turned to watch. I mean, I don't know if you followed that, Alison, you, you can... Yes, yeah. yes. 
um, the, the optics was horrible for the royals um, in the Platinum's um, tour that they were doing in the Caribbean. Um, you know, William and Kate didn't necessarily probably expect what they saw. And the, you know, the Wessex couple as well, when they went off to the Caribbean as well, they also encountered a little bit of um, pushback. Um, I think that, you know, Barbados becoming a republic opened up some further discourse um, and probably inspired some um, thought to go back towards, you know, do we want to go towards republic in different nations in the Caribbean that are still um, under the current rule that they have. Um, I think that what bothers people, and I think that what also has gained traction, especially since the Black Lives Matter movement um, intensified um, during the COVID period in the United States, and across the world there was mobilization against you know, racial injustice and so forth. And colonialism also came up as well, and the monuments that we have towards um, European colonizers in these spaces across the world and should we still be revering persons who were involved in the transatlantic slave trade should we still have that sort of narrative and i think that that situation intensified now in barbados for example there were groups that came together and joined in solidarity with the black lives matter movement and there did some marches around bridgetown and then that further intensified to calls to remove lord nelson again now, you have Lord Nelson in the heart of Bridgetown, in formerly Trafalgar Square, which is, you know, linked to Britain and Lord Nelson and so forth. And then we, we named Trafalgar Square National, National Heroes, Hero Square. So how do you have Nelson in a hero square in the heart of Bridgetown? So persons were you know, intensifying their calls for removal and Prime Minister Martin listened and removed him from the space. I think that that compounded by continued calls for reparations and continued calls for apology from European colonizers um, by people of the region. Now, the Rastafari community have always been hopeful about this. Um, CARICOM also has a a, a commission, a reparations commission, headed by Vice Chancellor Sir Hilary Beckles um, from the University of the West Indies. And we also have Professor Varane Shepherd, who's also a part of the UN on uh, racial injustice and so forth. So we have academics, we have CARICOM, we have community groups and, and, and people saying that, you know, it's time to say, you know, let, let's have some accountability you know, and try to assist us in moving forward. When we got our independence, we didn't have any economic assistance and we had problems in terms of our development, in terms of health, education, social services. And what we see over time in the Caribbean, in Africa as well, is underdevelopment in these areas and having to go towards the IMF and the World Bank, structural adjustment, dollar devaluation, et cetera. So the people are, want to have a change and they want to have some measure of accountability and assistance. So I think that all of these things were compounding each other and there's a, a domino effect that was happening. And so when we see the platinum celebrations and the touring of the royals, Enough is enough. So people have their placards out and they, and they have on their placards what they want to say. And we have prime ministers in Jamaica and in, I think the Bahamas saying, you know, 
we, we, we are reconsidering this arrangement. This arrangement doesn't work for us anymore. And we will see what will happen next. But for the royals, the PR didn't look so great because it is not necessarily what they would have expected on the, on the platinum celebrations. But I think that the people of the region want some measure of accountability and that would go over a bit better. I want to acknowledge that the roots of our contemporary association run deep into the most painful period of our history. I cannot describe the depths of my personal sorrow at the suffering of so many as I continue to deepen my own understanding of slavery's enduring impact. And, and I think that made it probably worse. Perhaps they shouldn't have said, I acknowledge. So people would say, well, why can't you just say this, this, this instead? So we shall see what happens afterwards. But of course, William and Kate are still well-liked and their children are still well-liked. The little one, I can't remember his name. He's quite a character. Louis. Yes, he's quite mm. a character. And the, and the, the press love him um, as well. And Charlotte, for sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I found quite striking, because I mean, that that happened and William and Kate went out and it was just like, it just was getting worse every day, wasn't it? Like, it, was, it was quite incredible to watch. And then, and then Prince Edward went out there and did that speech. And someone said, someone directly said to him about reparations. And I mean, he just like laughed. He did not, he did not know what to say. Like there was no preparation whatsoever. <laughs> and I mean, I just, it just says something that, it says something about white privilege, but it says something about like the, how like self-assured that power within that institution is, right? That they, they, they didn't see it coming, but also, they didn't know how to deal with it when it did. And then they kind of, they, they didn't know the right way to address it because it didn't seem to have penetrated the institution almost, right? Because there's that kind of, oh, we'll just go out and we'll do our usual thing, right? We'll shake a few people's hands and it'll be fine. It's like, no, even though, like, as you said, right, the world, you know, things are changing, you know, discourse are changing, right? So, and, but there didn't seem to be kind of any engagement with that I mean I just thought it was like incredible to what in really simplistic terms just like how incredibly out of touch they were with with where everything was going yeah it didn't resonate with them at all even though there were protests in England itself during the Black Lives Matter time and I'm not sure how you know um they missed it you know yeah but I mean, so we could there's lots of institutions we could ask that question for, isn't there? But the, the, the monarchy is a particular example, obviously, because of the history of colonialism, of links with the, with, um, the slave trade and all of these things. Like how just kind of no interrogation of their own position within that. Well, it will be interesting to see after what has happened, um, what will be, you know, their position going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think as well that um, Caribbean people, for example, have become more aware of their history. I think Pan-Africanism as well has become a bit more um, forward as well. And I think that persons are more conscious and aware of certain um certain issues and of course the generation of today is totally different from the past and of course their attachment to the monarchy is going to be different you know with Queen Elizabeth there was a, a level of respect and reverence and loyalty to her um, that you know persons would have 
But I don't know going forward if we will see the same with King Charles. Will the connection be the same? Well, you are in England, so you would have to tell me what you think uh, on that. I mean, I think it would be very different. And I think the attachment to the Queen was a very particular personal attachment that lots of people had, even though, of course, they didn't know her. But how that was attached to, I mean, in an English perspective, I will say, not necessarily Scottish, I don't think, or Welsh. This very particular idea of national identity that's attached to kind of that post-war nostalgia period that we seem to be in with the Conservative government, that she kind of embodied in a particular way. And how it kind of got attached, and I think, I think gender mattered as well. Yeah, I'd be really interested to hear what you how that how that resonates but I think her gender mattered in terms of presenting the queen as kind of this particularly when she was older right that kind of you know wanting to care for her as a, as a great grandmother and her relationship with her family and all of that and I think that was I think that was incredibly powerful and I think their loss of that I mean we'll see how it plays out I think it'll be quite huge for them in terms of what that was masking actually and how people didn't people almost didn't want to interrogate when the Queen was in. Like even the UK uh, Republic uh, campaign group, they always said, we campaign for the monarchy to end when the Queen goes. Like there was a complete, you know, people don't want to address that with the Queen because I think it was that very specific relationship. I mean, does that resonate for you, Alison? Yeah, I agree. I, I can see what you're saying in terms of the difference in the relationship. So it's going to be interesting to see how um, King Charles navigates his um, reign. You know, what's yeah. his style? Yeah, absolutely. Holly, what is your feeling similar in terms of Queen, King? I mean, I, I do think gender, gender is key as well. Yeah, I think gender is, is really key. And I'm just reminded of when uh, Kate Middleton and Prince William were expecting their first child and there was that huge rush from David Cameron as well as the Commonwealth countries to change the laws of uh, primogeniture so that should Prince William and, and, and Kate Middleton have a daughter that uh, she wouldn't be passed over in, in favour of a, a second-born son. So I think, I think gender has a, has, a, has a big role to play there. Um, and I was wondering if I could just go back to a point that Alison made about what, it, what is the broader public's literacy about histories of colonisation, imperialism and the role of the Crown? Because I think that has a big impact on how the things that we were discussing, like the protests, are understood and digested in the public. Australia, after the after the Queen's passing, there was a little bit of d debate in the news media about whether it was respectful for First Nations to, to sort of have this collective sort of public mourning for the Queen. And um, there was a, a First Nations politician who said, in their view, that the Queen was the, the embodiment of, of Crown possession that the British monarchy have a lot to answer for in relation to the dispossession of First Nations and settler colonisation. And she had a lot of negative backlash to that. There was a lot of backlash to her talking uh, about this. And there was also some really sort of contradictory, strange things that were happening whereby like sporting games that would normally open with an acknowledgement or welcome to country from First Nations were being opened instead with... Um, sort of mourning for the Queen and, and how contradictory that was to sort of have mourning for the Queen and then invite an elder to come along and then do welcome to country or um, an acknowledgement of country. So I think in an, an, an Australian context, what those kinds of moments 
potentially reveal sometimes is the lack of kind of literacy of what does colonisation mean, like what does Crown possession mean and what does that mean for First Nations? And I'm wondering too if we have time maybe to talk about what we think the role of Meghan Markle was in the royal family in terms of circulating or perhaps making explicit some of those ideas about race and and white race privilege? I think absolutely. I was actually going to bring that up. (laughs) I mean, do you have, I I think, again, I think, you know, we're talking about a particular moment for the monarchy. And I think a lot changed, actually, for lots of of people and for them. And um, in terms of those things we were talking about things being taken for granted right and it's kind of not noticing and I think Megan all of a sudden Megan's presence made us again notice right and kind of take note of those things I mean do you Holly do you want to speak to that in the in your context I mean I'm interested in what Alison has to say about this but I'm, I'm wondering just in relation to that point before that we were talking about the British monarchy sort of seemingly being unprepared to respond publicly to these debates and questions about colonisation, about reparations, about privilege. And I I wonder if perhaps there was a missed opportunity for them to strategically use Meghan Markle to try to contain some of those critiques and and say, look, we're we're not as as privileged as you think we might be, that we're we're a multiracial family and then um, having Megan uh, depart and Harry depart from the family perhaps makes those issues much more explicit. But I, I do wonder if she'd stayed within the, the British monarchy, whether that, that might have been used strategically to kind of contain some of those, those issues. But I'm interested to see what, what Alison thinks about her role in the, in the monarchy. Um, I think it is interesting that I, I, I think I agree with you. It was a missed opportunity. Now the world is going towards this whole idea of inclusivity and being inclusive. And we have a woman who is mixed marrying into the royal family. And she's not the only um, black person who married into a European um, royalty, you know? So it's not that bizarre. However, you know, for some reason, you know, she continued to be excluded and, and and we could see that she became unhappier and unhappier. And, you know, I think that the opportunity could have been used to use, not usable, utilized to some extent, her role to navigate some of the nuances relating to race. Now in England, you had the Windrush scandal, which was a drama um, in terms of how do you deal with persons who are of African descent who came into the UK during that, um, the, that era of the Rain Rush. And it seems that, you know, there's blunder after blunder. I'm not sure why, but maybe it comes from that whole perspective of white privilege and not really caring. Um, this is policy. This is how we're going to move forward. And this is what it is going to be to the exclusion of other groups and marginalization of others. Um, so, you know, Megan, it came across to the world that she was marginalized just because of who she, what she looked like and what she represented. And was it necessary? Um, they would have to know uh, in, my, in my view. But I do agree that it was an, it's an opportunity to navigate some of these um, 
these waters in terms of people's perspectives and people's views that are changing around discourses of race and class and sexual identity and gender identity and all these different things that are fluid constructs of who we determine we are. There was an attempt, right, I think, when Megan first married in, there was an attempt to kind of do just that. And it was an attempt to co-opt who she was and her identity and what she stood for into the institution. That's how I kind of read it. They went on a tour, didn't they? They did. They went on a, a regional mm. tour of Australia. They they toured quite extensively and Harry used that tour to promote mental health issues. There, there wasn't much... Mm. I can't really remember much that Megan said on that tour, but then later on, I think on the Oprah interview, she said that she was completely miserable on that on that tour to Australia. So maybe that's why she was a bit more um, she was a bit more subdued on that tour. What What do you think went wrong, Laura? If they attempted in the beginning and then somehow it went awry, what do you think went wrong? Racism. <laughs> I think but there I we think, go. <laughs> let's name it. Well, the British press are incredibly racist and sexist and all of those things. And I think that having a woman of colour at the centre of, of state power was just was was too much. It was it was it just it imploded because what's important to remember as well is the particular moment that, that Meghan Markle married in. It was right after Brexit. The rise of kind of populism and, and and racism and xenophobia that went alongside Brexit, it was at the same time as, you know, we, we call it the culture wars or, you know, very kind of far right politics and how that attacks particular people. Megan being one of the people for being a woman, a woman of colour, saying she's a feminist. I think a lot of it was by virtue of the, of the context in terms of she became like a cipher for all of those kind of narratives that got put onto her essentially but she just became symbolic of all of that you know all of that within one woman and it was about it kind of was going to explode because how can one woman <laughs> kind of symbolize all of that at the same time as symbolizing progress for people of color in terms of in terms of power and statehood and all of that i think it was just it was all too much how was this narrated around the world i mean i think it was interesting i remember reading a lot about the when she said in oprah that she went to go to HR. And so I went to Human Resources. And I said, I just really, I, I need help. They said, my heart goes out to you because I see how bad it is, but there's nothing we can do to protect you because you're not a paid employee of the institution. So I do, I do remember there being some reporting of that in an, an Australian context and that being sort of set against this sort of expectation that you would think in the 21st century that that any any anyone would be able to get support from from HR if they if they said that they were they were experiencing racism um, but I, I think too just coming back to that point that I mentioned before I think these kinds of moments perhaps reveal the lack of kind of racial literacy in some institutions such as the the media or a lack of literacy in, in understanding some of those historical contexts. And it, it did remind me of, I don't know if you, you're familiar with Michael Billig's banal nationalism, and he did this study in the 90s where he talked to people about the royal family and there was this kind of implicit um, and sort of explicit assumption that the royal family needed to be white. And, and, and one participant said that, I mean, of course, 
Prince Charles is free to marry whoever he wants, but I don't actually think he would have been free to marry um, a black girl. And that was in the 90s. And then you sort of look at the experience that Meghan had with marrying Prince Harry and the kind of reaction from the media. I do wonder, it, it, it sounds like not much has changed in terms of the people's perceptions and the, the kind of racial literacy of the other institutions that support the Crown, such as such as the media. I'm wondering if you think there will be a change now that you have a Prime Minister who isn't white. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think, I mean, I think his politics are pretty terrible. <laughs> I mean, representation, and I think it is important to acknowledge um, so I've got a colleague, um, Hannah Yellen, who did a piece with Michelle Paul and they interviewed young girls in schools in the UK and they, these were girls of colour and they said, you know, having a woman of colour in the monarchy is like incredible, like to see ourselves represented. And I think like to like to, to have that representation is incredibly powerful actually. But then I think similarly to, to Rishi Sunak, how that then plays out in terms of the institution, I think it is, is maybe what matters. I mean, we're recording this um, at the end of October um, so it's very early days for the new prime minister. Um, so we'll maybe see how that plays out. But I think I think you know there are ways in which the Conservative Party are not known for their progressive policies on race um, or on gender. Indeed, and we've just had a, a a woman prime minister, of course. So kind of how that plays out within those particular institutions, I think, is important. I mean, I guess before we wrap up, we've we've talked we've kind of talked a little bit right about how we're at this particular turning point in the monarchy. I think. Um, we've had Prince Andrew, who caused, you know, those stories have caused massive damage, I think, um, as they should have. Um, Meghan Markle, the Oprah interview, um, just recently announced was Prince Harry's memoir, which I am incredibly excited about. I cannot wait. Um, and then, of course, we've got, you know, the Queen recently passed away and we've got King Charles and that's the huge change that undertakes in terms of this complete disruption of the status quo in various ways. So I mean I wonder well I wonder what you think do you think we'll see do you think changes are coming you know in your particular context do you think what kind of changes might you like to see can you see I mean and we should also mention Barbados right and that's, and that's not long happened. So you, can you see that kind of setting up a snowball effect elsewhere in the world and this course is kind of spreading? Where what, where do you think we'll go from here? Uh, I just would say that I'm not sure how you're keeping up with all these changes. The last couple of years has been so dramatic for you from this Brexit thing to like prime minister after prime minister. I'm like, goodness gracious, it's a lot. And, you know, your mm -hmm. phone is dropping and it's like, I can't, you can't, I can't keep up. So I have to ask you how you're coping. <laughs> well, no, all... we we can't we can't keep up either. <laughs> <laughs> coping with um, if every day is something, uh, but it it kind of shows to the world that you know you know the idea of Britain and and its empire and and it has you know after decolonization, but the idea of Britain being Great Britain, it has flaws as well. It has trouble as well. It has political drama. It has economic drama as well. And um, it's interesting to see how Britain will navigate through this time of turbulence. Well, you know, in history, there are times that you have peaks and you have lows. And you know how you navigate through this will be, you know, quite interesting. So I think the world is watching 
um, what is happening in your uh, part of the world to see, um, you know, what happens there now. Of course, in the Caribbean, we have quite a lot of um, persons that, you know, live in, um, in the UK. Um, a lot of them are retirees that, you know, return home, etc. So economically, that may be a little concerning to them in terms of how the pound is going. Um, but what I would just say is that, of course, with Barbados becoming a republic and the changing economic and political climate of, of Britain, and then, of course, the change to the monarchy with King Charles, um, we may very well see other countries using this particular moment to actually make that step towards going with um, a British monarchy. So we hear that there are discussions, but of course in the Caribbean, um, we all have different ways our constitutions are written towards going towards republic status. So we will see how um, persons navigate um, if they wish to go towards this or if they wish to remain under monarchy. And of course, it's their choice that you would you know, basically respect so I think that in terms of Barbados, Barbados has said and England has said that it will remain cordial. They will remain, you know, a working relationship. We've remained under the Commonwealth with other um, nations as well. So um, even though that um, symbolic transition has been, or that tie has been cut with the monarchy, and Barbados has its first head of state, Dame Sandra, um, who was deemed before as governor general, but now President Sandra Mason, I think that there's a sense of pride that Barbados finally has a head of state that is Barbadian. Um, we had two commissions in the 70s and in the 90s about this and this whole idea of having a head of state that is from Barbados, uh, loyal to Barbados and so forth was always touted. So now we finally achieved that. Now, Barbados, for example, has to navigate some economic challenges intensified by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we are hoping for the best. Tourism has gone, you know, has been impacted by that, et cetera. So we're hoping for a continued upturn and we're hoping to continue to navigate. Prime Minister Motley um, does well on the international stage. And I hope that she continues to navigate Barbados into this, um, you know, into these different ways that she needs to in order to keep the country afloat in these challenging times. So I think that in essence, what we would want to see um, from, you know, Europe, according to what Karen Com is saying as our regional body, is some elements of reparations. And we would also like to have, um, in terms of Barbados, we would always um, have that working relationship with Britain as the Prime Minister and, you know, the officials in England would have said from before. Right. I really hope it does, you know, well, the Republican in Barbados prompts those conversations elsewhere as well, I think. It's, yeah, I think it, it already has. It already mm -hmm. has, because um, we saw a different, um, because when, at the time, I guess moments are important. At the time when Barbados became Republic, the world kind of was at a standstill. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was a moment in time that, you know, we haven't had a Republic since, um, for quite a few decades as well. So here we have a small island becoming a republic during a pandemic, the world has slowed down. So we see it and the immediate attention from large networks and even to Instagram bloggers and so forth was a lot. And Rihanna also being involved also yeah. put a lot of eyes on Barbados. It was quite strategic of Prime Minister Motley to be quite honest. So. Having all of that really put a spotlight on Barbados for that time. 
And I guess that was an ideal moment in history. Yeah. Hopefully the dominoes around the world will fall. <laughs> for the we monarchy shall see. Hope. <laughs> we, we, we shall see. We shall see what will happen. We shall see what will happen. Um, Holly, what would you like? What do you think will happen? What would you like to see happen? I think it's probably, it's, it's probable that now that we have a, a Labour Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, that they, they might push for a referendum now that uh, Queen Elizabeth has passed. It'd be interesting to see what Prince Charles's relationship with First Nations in Australia is is going to be like. I mentioned before that the, the members of the British monarchy have been um, interlocutors for First Nations in terms of a sovereign First Nations engaging with another sovereign to discuss what's happening in Australia and the treatment of First Nations in Australia. So it would be interesting to see what that relationship between Prince Charles and First Nations will be like. I also wonder too, it's been reported that, that, that Prince Charles is a bit of an environmentalist and supports sustainability and that's that's a big issue at the moment in Australia. Obviously we're a very dry country so water security and sustainability is very very important and there has been a response to First Nations forms of agriculture and aquaculture that are sustainable and I wonder if there might be some kind of ground there for the relationship between Prince Charles and First Nations around that issue of sustainability but I also think Kate and William are really popular and their kids are really popular too and and the monarchy is really good at making enough adjustments and adaptations in order to remain durable so we discussed the changing of primogeniture in relation to firstborn males so probably there'll be further changes that, that Kate and, and William and their, their kids will make as well. But it, it, it's a very durable institution despite all the criticisms and despite all the issues that we've discussed about in this podcast. It, um, it keeps going. It's, it's very durable, very sustainable. And they've, they've weathered crises in the past. There's nothing to say they won't weather this one. I mean, I always say the monarchy, the monarchy is always changing in order to stay the same. So the kind of they're inviting all of these new new people in and, and kind of doing this thing of like they look like they're changing with the times, but actually it's just kind of shore up that power and shore up that wealth. Um and they're they're really good at that. Yeah, um, but it's part of it's part of your identity. So I mean, how do you navigate moving it? Because you know, when you think Britain, you think the Queen or so forth. So is it not like entrenched into your identity? Well, you tell me. It's entrenched into a lot of people's understanding of Britishness. So I think that's why, I mean, you know, talking about republicanism here, I think is slightly different than talking about it in, you know, Australia or wherever else in the world, because it's a different, it's a very, I think it's a different relationship. And like you said, it's kind of, it's not kind of not just embedded into the state, it's embedded into culture and <laughs> and society in different ways, I think. I think people's awareness is, is starting to change. I mean, I think Scotland and Wales is really interesting to keep an eye out for. I mean, they're the approval ratings in Scotland are much, much, much lower than they are in England. So, you know, if you kind of see the differences there in, in, in terms of their politics, right, and in terms of what how they identify, how that might, those conversations might kind of move throughout the whole of the UK, maybe. Um, I think we're a long way off, if I'm honest. But I do think, you know, I said before, I joked before about dominoes falling. I do think that kind of the more that happens and the more countries kind of have these whatever, you know, but vote to get rid of the monarchy or, or do in whatever way, 
I think that prompts discourse. And I think that's that's really important because it kind of it raises kind of awareness of these issues and it makes people see that there are alternatives, right? Countries approve there are. So kind of see and having those seeing those being available as well, I think I think is really important because that doesn't happen in the UK. We don't really have kind of education around what alternatives might be. And actually people might be interested if we had those discussions. So I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, these other countries around the world and their, their own debates that they're having for their own reasons. I don't mean having it on behalf of Britain, but how, how that then might influence kind of other countries around the world and how that they all might kind of link up in that way. So thank you so much, Alison and Holly. That was a really wonderful discussion. Thank you for listening to The Global Power of the British Monarchy, guest executively produced by Laura Clancy. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.